Hello, and welcome to the Inequality Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Durloff, the director of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth, Inequality, and Mobility. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to another episode of the uh, Inequality Podcast. I'm Jeff Woodkey, one of the associate directors of the Stone Center and a co-host uh, for the Inequality Podcast. I'm talking today with uh, Stephen and our guest, Professor Nate Wilmers, who studies wage inequality, labor markets, and organizations. Our conversation starts by examining how wage inequality has changed over the past few decades. Uh, according to different estimates, the average income of the top 1% of earners has grown more than 200% since 1980, compared to only about 25% for the bottom half of earners. These aren't just numbers. Uh, they reflect difficult realities that impact people's lives every day at the grocery store, the gas station, making rent, and so on. The rest of our conversation zeroes in on the different causes of this trend, focusing on a variety of institutional, organizational, and political changes. So for example, we'll discuss how declining unions, which were once a powerful force for wage parity, closely corresponds with rising inequality. And we'll also chat about the prospects for a resurgent labor movement in the U.S. in the wake of tightening job markets in recent years. Another aspect of our conversation involves managerial philosophies, workplaces as organizations, and how they have evolved over time, uh, leading to the erosion of standardized wage scales and internal labor markets. So these changes can be seen in the rise of pay-for-performance models in industries like healthcare and education, uh, and in the decline of opportunities uh, to work your way up the occupational ladder within uh, the same company. So we'll look at how this affects upward social mobility, uh, particularly for low-wage workers. Our conversation also addresses uh, the topic of consumer demand and how it's been influenced by an increasingly unequal income distribution. A prime example here is the luxury goods market, which has grown uh, due to the increased purchasing power of wealthy individuals. Uh, we consider how the growth of employers serving an increasingly polarized consumer market might have feedback effects on the wages of workers. And finally, we don't just focus on the problems, but we'll also discuss potential solutions that are informed by Nate's research. What policies could help combat growing inequality or support wage growth for those at the bottom of the distribution? This is an episode that takes a close look into big issues that have a real-world impact, so thanks for tuning in. So today we're joined by Nathan Wilmers, who is the Seraphim Family Career Development Associate Professor of Work and Organization Studies at the MIT Sloan School of Management. At MIT, he's also affiliated with the Institute for Work and Employment Research and the Economic Sociology Program. Um, Nate got his BA in philosophy from right here at the University of Chicago um, and his PhD in sociology from Harvard. So uh, welcome, Nate. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So the first thing that I, I wanted to ask you is if you could just kind of give us the background story of kind of what you study. And so, you know, how exactly has wage inequality changed over the past few decades? Sure. So with kind of the, the start of World War II, if I can go back even a little further than the last few decades, there was sort of a big decrease in labor market inequality and inequality in, in wages and earnings, the, the so-called Great Compression that came with 
the end of the Great Depression, World War II, tight labor markets in the U.S., the rise of industrial labor unions, all of these sort of big labor market changes that ushered in basically a generation of relatively egalitarian growth and relatively low inequality in the U.S. and, and also actually in a lot of other countries. Then starting basically in the 1980s, inequality started to rise again. You know, if you look back over basically the period from 1980 through the Great Recession, inequality in wages increased by about 40%, which basically means that the highest paid workers in the labor market are getting paid much more than sort of the, the median worker or relatively low paid workers. And, and those gaps increased a lot over the last 40 years. What I work on is trying to understand why that happened, what different changes contributed to that. And part of why it's a, an important thing to think about is because, you know, in, in principle, we as social scientists should start to be able to come up with some ways to address these trends, reverse these trends, think about how we can restore more egalitarian wage growth in the labor market. So since the 1980s, you know, the period where inequality, you know, kind of reversed its compression and then started increasing again, you know, what is kind of driving wages apart? Is it mainly declining wages at the bottom of the earnings distribution, stagnation in the middle, growth at the top, or different combinations of these changes during different decades? Yeah, yeah, great question. So basically, starting in the 1980s, inequality throughout the distribution was growing. So there was an expanding gap between uh, median workers and workers at the top. But there was also an expanding gap between median workers and workers at the bottom. So that actually started to change in the 1990s and 2000s, where basically sort of lowest wage workers and, and median workers, inequality stopped rising between them. But during that time, wages are basically stagnant for workers in the middle and at the bottom. So you know, they weren't growing apart, but they weren't really growing at all for workers at the bottom and, and in the middle. Um, whereas in contrast, workers at the top of the wage distribution, managers, professionals, executives, their pay uh, continued rising really rapidly. So basically, the 1980s, think of it as like inequality uh, throughout the distribution among all workers is kind of growing. And then the 1990s and 2000s, it's really a story about a growing gap between the top and the rest of the distribution. And then, you know, I'll say more recently that the sort of this last decade, these last 10 years, which I've been thinking about a lot recently, things shifted again a bit. And we actually saw uh, labor market inequality stop growing and even decline a bit, starting sort of between 2012 and 2015 with the long recovery from the Great Recession. And that story is all about very rapid pay growth at the bottom of the distribution. Those lowest wage workers that I mentioned before have really done a lot to close the gap between sort of the bottom of the labor market and the middle of the labor market, whereas kind of inequality between the top and the middle has, has remained pretty, pretty steady. So one of the, you know, alternative or maybe complementary explanations that you've written a lot about with regard to, you know, what ex is explaining this growth in wage inequality since the 1980s is deunionization or the decline of unions over time. So how has union representation changed and how is this trend connected with growing wage inequality? Yeah, so like just look at a chart of sort of inequality growth over time and union decline, they really line up pretty well. Like I mentioned before, in the 1940s, when we saw this big compression in the labor market, that was also the period of the rise of industrial labor unions, the Treaty of Detroit, the sort of codification of collective bargaining, especially in, in manufacturing and production type jobs in the US. Um, so that gives some sort of like, you know, just on the face of it evidence that these two things might be connected. Um, and then, you know, I think there's sort of growing evidence that unions can matter for inequality in a few different ways. So one way is if you just think about like there's a union representing workers in some workplace, how does that union decide what to bargain for? Well, there's a bunch of different models of like union decision making and the details of how this happens. But in general, we would expect that that union is going to be sort of representing all of its members, representing kind of the median voter in their union. And therefore, there's going to be uh, somewhat less inequality in that set of wage proposals or that collective bargaining agreement that gets reached 
than what you would expect if you know you didn't have any union intermediary sort of aggregating what those different workers are asking for. And so you you expect unions to sort of compress wages in that way among their members, which which we we do see happening in the data. And then, of course, more broadly, um, unions are politically active on issues that tend to be inequality reducing, increased minimum wages, tax and transfer policies, these sort of um, public policy factors that matter a lot for inequality, but which don't happen automatically and certainly don't happen if working people don't have any sort of organized collective voice to push for this stuff. And so I think those are sort of somewhat different ways that, that unions have mattered historically for inequality and why I, I think it's it's important to study unions both for sort of understanding their effects and, and also for thinking about sort of how they work and, and what what challenges they face, particularly now, you know, I feel like every every few years there's some sort of brief new spurt of optimism about labor unions. Like last year, it was the the striketober, uh, October, I think it was 2021. There were several high profile strikes and everyone thought, okay, this is it. Like the labor movement's back. We're back in business. The Amazon election in New York, there was sort of a, a similar wave of media coverage. The series of now over 300 uh, Starbucks stores that voted for unions. But notwithstanding those sort of waves of enthusiasm and media coverage, it does seem like unions face some really uh, big structural barriers to growth, which uh, I think makes it important to sort of study unions, research them, figure out kind of how do they work and, and what might potentially uh, uh, go into re- revitalizing them. Yeah, so so you mentioned unions are political actors. They cultivate potentially like this egalitarian moral economy, you know, that constrains compensation practices. And then, of course, they com- collectively bargain. The other thing that they do is go on strike. And, you know, you've done some really interesting research on the effectiveness of, of strikes at reducing wage inequality and how that's kind of changed in this era of relatively weaker unions. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about that? That's right. Yeah. So this is a project with uh, Maxine Massenkoff that's out or forthcoming or something in Journal of Labor Economics, where we found a, a neat data thing, which is that for decades and all of our standard labor market surveys that we use to study the economy, there's a question asked of workers, which is, were you at work last week? Or sometimes, have you missed any work in the last month or last few months? And, you know, most of the responses to that question uh, are like ones that would make sense from our perspective sitting here in 2023. Like, I was sick or I was on vacation or I was compa- I was caring for, for a, a sick loved one. Uh, but because all of these labor market surveys started being done in the 1940s and 1950s, Another response on that list of five or six responses is, no, I I missed work last week because of a labor dispute, because I was out on strike. And so this we saw as an opportunity to study, okay, at the individual worker level, what happens when people go on strike? And basically, the simple summary of our results is that if you go on strike in the 1970s, it's consistently associated with a sharp increase in earnings relative to how much you were making prior to striking. But by the 1980s, and starting specifically with the PATCO air traffic controller strike and President Reagan's response to that strike, which was to fire the strikers and, and to hire permanent strike replacements, we start to see that that strikes actually aren't associated with, with the earnings increases that, that we saw in the 70s. And it's basically, if you look at the plot of workers' earnings over time after they go on strike, it, it really doesn't look like there's much difference. Um, this whole kind of post-war order broke down in the 1980s and, and no longer works the way that it did. One sort of important caveat, though, about that paper is the the findings don't show that strikes or labor activism no longer work. It's very possible that these strikes successfully fended off some big cutbacks or some wage cut that the employer was pushing for, and which counterfactually would have happened had workers not gone on strike, where there you'd be interpreting the results as sort of Unions have to shift starting in the 1980s towards more defensive strikes where they're trying to just defend the compensation packages that they have rather than push for more like they were able to do previously. And we're not really able to, to disentangle uh, which of those two things has changed. And, and my guess is a lot of it is the sort of unions being forced to shift in, into a, a defensive posture. 
So if you were forced to speculate, do you think the influence of unions and, and maybe striking in particular might see a bit of a rebound? Yeah, it's totally possible. And throughout this period, starting with the end of the Great Recession, union prominence in a lot of labor markets in the U.S. has actually increased quite a bit, chiefly around the service employees' international unions fight for 15, which was sort of this kind of social movement-oriented effort to change norms about what we think is an acceptable wage to pay relatively low-wage workers. And I think that's been really successful on, on a bunch of levels. One place you see it is through increased minimum wages, both at the state and also local and municipal levels. You also see it sort of through big corporations like Target and Amazon announcing corporate uh, minimum wages where they say, look, we as a corporation voluntarily are not going to have any of our workers paid below, say, $15 an hour. So I'll say in, in terms of sort of prominence and maybe even kind of indirect influence on inequality and labor market outcomes, unions have, have done a lot in the last 10 years. Unfortunately, that has not translated into an increase in union membership, an increase in union density in the way that we saw in sort of the, the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. The share of U.S. workers, especially in the private sector, who are, who are union members, have just kind of continued to decline over time and is down to like 6 or 7% now. Um, so there's a few things that could happen that would certainly increase my optimism. One would be some sort of substantial labor law reform that kind of changes a, a, a set of rules around how workers seek representation by unions that, that really have, have not been working well over the last several decades. I think that the likelihood that that happens as sort of a, a national political reform is, is relatively low. Another thing that, that would increase my optimism is if unions are able to actually when some of these high-profile campaigns that I mentioned before have kind of brought more media attention to unions. So again, Amazon, Starbucks, these campaigns, I think, surprised a lot of people and seem to sort of come out of nowhere, but I think are, are reflective of workers in these low-wage jobs that you mentioned um, having a bit more bargaining power and also having sort of long simmering concerns about their working conditions. And so I think if we start to see unions actually uh, winning some first collective bargaining agreements in these high-profile campaigns, that, that would be reason for optimism. Could you say something about the so-called gig economy? I mean, there's been considerable public discussion of the role of gig jobs in reducing union power, worker bargaining uh, power, and the like. Sure. Yeah, it's a good question. And there's some great recent research on this by uh, Andy Guerin at University of Illinois and colleagues who got access to basically the IRS's 1099 forms, which is sort of a should be a really effective way to measure how much gig work and more broadly, how much independent contracting self-employment there is uh, in the U.S. economy. Gig work sort of more narrowly defined as workers who are engaged with some sort of online platform for providing their work. So, you know, Uber, Lyft, Upwork, platform economy stuff. That sort of uh, work has actually increased more, especially really recently, like the last five or 10 years. Um, one thing they show, though, is that that increase has almost entirely been in the transportation sector. Think Uber and Lyft. That being said, I think it's it's a much larger share of workers who are in some way working for an employer intermediary rather than for some ultimate employer. So who are working for, instead of the University of Chicago, who are working for Sodexo or Aramark in the cafeterias here, actually, uh, or Securitas for, for the security guards, or somebody who's employed through a temp agency rather than directly employed through an employer. And that's what uh, David Weil has called sort of the fissured employment. And that, I think, it, you could think of as sort of a, a generalization of how we think about gig work or, or, or independent contracting is just a way that profitable companies can sort of separate workers from their direct payroll and sort of reduce the kind of um, responsibility and obligation they have to those workers. And that, I think, is sort of a much bigger source of, of rising inequality and, and, and wage stagnation than kind of gig economy narrowly construed has been so far. But again, hard to predict the future. So workplace fishering, this kind of outsourcing of particular sets of occupations or tasks is closely related to, you know, another central topic of your research, which is kind of the decline of what's called internal hiring practices, right? So 
an interesting case that you mentioned in, in one of your papers on this topic, you know, is about an employee, um, Gail Evans, at the Eastman Kodak Company in the 1980s. She first started out as a janitor for the company and then rose up the ranks over the years to eventually become chief technology officer there. So, you know, internal labor markets were once, you know, kind of a central feature of companies that seemed to have facilitated, you know, upward mobility for sort of lower wage workers, you know, into the ranks of management or higher wage jobs more generally. But this has all kind of changed, maybe partly because of the rise of gig economies and partly for other reasons. Um, so I'm curious about, you know, what's happened with internal hiring practices and, and how this has affected the prospects for upward mobility among low-wage workers. Yeah, it's a great question. And this is a paper with uh, Will Kimball that came out a couple of years ago where basically we ask like, how do workers actually achieve uh, upward occupational mobility? How do they end up in, in better jobs? And one thing you, you might think is that the main way that you do that is by sort of working really hard in your current job and impressing the boss and getting promoted down the lines of what you're describing. But for workers in relatively low paying occupations, there's really not much opportunity for upward mobility within their current firms, upward mobility with their current employers impressing their current boss. Now, why is this? Well, a, a big reason for it is there just aren't that many higher paying occupations in the workplaces where these workers are. There, there aren't that many positions that people can get promoted into. So within the same firm, within yeah. the same firm, exactly. So, you know, if, if you imagine a retail store, um, Walmart, for example, has a really strong commitment and, and a, a commitment that, that, that they publicize really widely of trying to promote store managers from frontline associate positions within stores. So even if you uh, imagine that Walmart is extremely committed to that, committed to that to the point that they're only going to hire their general managers from inside their uh, stores, even so, that would still be like a one in a hundred shot that a retail associate working at some Walmart store would have to be promoted into that position. Or maybe if you allow that there's also an assistant manager position, it's a two in a hundred shot. And that's going to be the same story if you're talking about sort of outsourced uh, security, logistics, food service type positions, where basically it's it just these jobs aren't connected to sort of a occupationally diverse, integrated organization that, that could provide upward mobility. Again, even if their employers were sort of really committed to it as, as, as an employment practice. And so uh, workers in low wage jobs need to switch their employers to achieve uh, sort of consistent upward occupational mobility, which I think uh, connects to, to the sort of dynamics that we've been seeing in tight labor markets recently, which is that there's been larger wage growth, especially since the pandemic, for relatively low-wage workers who switch employers versus workers who stay put, which is consistent with them sort of being able to take advantage of these tightened labor markets to uh, provide better opportunities at, at different, different firms. So it sounds like what's happened is the division of labor, you know, used to be sort of expressed through differences in occupations within the same firm, right, which enabled this possibility of kind of moving from, you know, lower down the occupational ladder up. But more recently, the division of labor is expressed through different firms, right? So there's a firm for janitorial services and a firm for sales services and everything, every other little thing involved in some industry or, or bringing a product to market. And this has sort of reduced, you know, the scope for internal hiring to lead to kind of upward wage mobility. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's well put. Think about it in terms of the division of labor. Um, and basically, you could imagine that what you're describing could also contribute to inequality. If, you know, imagine that some firms just pay relatively high wages, other firms pay relatively low wages. Then the question is sort of which occupations, which jobs appear at those firms that pay relatively high wages. And so you can imagine, you know, going back 70 years, Ford Motor Company is going to be a pretty high wage employer and it's employing all sorts of jobs. It's employing managers and engineers, a ton of production workers, lots of skilled trades workers, electricians, et cetera. And so there's just sort of a, a, a really diverse set of occupations and jobs that are uh, benefiting from that kind of 
Ford Motor Company pay premium. If you fast forward to today, what are the really high paying firms? You could think of financial firms like Goldman Sachs or tech firms like Google or Apple or something. Well, which kinds of occupations, which sort of jobs are they directly employing? It's by and large workers with a college degree, financial analysts, uh, software engineers, occupations that are already relatively high paid compared to other occupations on average, and then benefit more from disproportionately being at these high paying firms. Whereas in contrast, the workers who are working in the Apple cafeteria aren't directly working for Apple, they're working for one of these outsourced contractors. And so that, yeah, both sort of uh, could contribute to, to interrupting these upward mobility career channels and also can sort of more directly lead to increased uh, labor market inequality. I think there's a very important issue, and that is that the paradigm of the Ford company is that you had different occupations in the same production function. And so success by one class of workers had, had consequences for others, whereas the 21st century paradigm is production functions that are very homogeneous in terms of occupations and hence don't generate those types of spillovers. Might you then extend that to, to t discuss issues of international globalization and, mm -hmm. and international trade? Because once mm -hmm. again, what, uh, you know, offshoring is a way of saying that you don't need the factors of production to be physically or domestically contiguous. Totally. And this is something that, as Jeff said, there's sort of a, a increased division of labor between firms within the same country. What you're describing, though, is the analogous thing. It's an increased division of labor uh, sorted across firms and also across countries rather than than in the same uh, same country. And I think that that again adds to the sort of um, reduction in bargaining power for basically workers in the bottom half of the distribution for whom there's been the most international competition over the last 40 years. Um, now, of course, that could change in the future. It, it could be that increasingly uh, managerial and professional workers in the U.S. are facing sort of more direct competition from abroad, but it's not what we've seen yet. There was like 10 years ago or something, there was this big like white collar jobs apocalypse prediction about the rise of India and other stuff that it seems like that 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 hasn't happened yet. But of course, it's possible that uh, that that economic globalization could sort of become less skill biased over time, um, but it, it works on that same logic. So uh, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is is earnings inequality has increased in part or maybe largely due to this kind of sustained growth in incomes at the top of the distribution, consumption patterns have changed as well, right? So now that we have kind of a more unequal distribution of income, we also have more high income consumers driving demand for different or new types of goods and services. So maybe like a few decades ago, there were more people going out to dinner at the local Greasy Spoon or for drinks at the corner pub, whereas today there's this increasing share of high-income consumers driving demand toward you know, the Michelin star restaurants and the high-end cocktail lounges. And so you've done some fascinating work on how growing income inequality can lead to shifts in consumer demand and how these shifts in consumer demand might kind of further exacerbate inequalities in the labor market. So what is the link between these shifts in consumer demand um, and trends in wage inequality? Are these like self-reinforcing uh, processes? Yeah, that's the fear. So as you put it, well, Jeff, like if you have growing income inequality, some consumers are going to end up with like a ton of spending power. There's going to be a sort of much bigger polarization of spending power in, in the economy than there was before. So if you imagine down the lines we were talking about, about division of labor and specialization, if you imagine that different firms are going to specialize in different parts of the consumer distribution, if they're going to sort of market segment to some extent, then as you get kind of more and more inequality among consumers, that can then map on to increased inequality between employers in the labor market insofar as, um, you know, there's a couple of key assumptions here. One is that there's some link between how much employers are paying and the sort of their profitability, their, their productivity, which, you know, workers get paid in part based on how well their, their employer is doing. Then the, the second assumption is that at least for a lot of jobs, you can't just sort of like 
get the same level of productivity by uh, employing twice as many workers and paying them the same amount as you would have with with half as many workers. And so, you know, with with those sort of uh, in in the weeds assumptions met, you could end up with a situation where basically rise in income inequality increases consumption inequality, which in turn then makes the labor market even more more unequal. And so we we see some some evidence for that. Again, it's hard to to predict the future. I certainly 10 years ago, circa 2012, did not predict that we would see declining labor market inequality rather than rising inequality. Um, but you could certainly imagine that that this is a channel that can sort of lock in a cycle of rising inequality absent other factors that that might then interrupt that, like tighten labor markets or these other changes. You raised uh, welfare's considerations and the uh, in injustice of inequality. Of course, mm -hmm. there's another dimension which has to do with fairness. And you know, I bring this up because one of the uh, ideas that appears in your work and has begun to appear in sociology is that of exploitation. Mm -hmm. As you well know, economists are not particularly comfortable with the uh, with the term. So I think it would be valuable if you could sort of talk a bit about how you conceptualize it and how to make it empirically operational. So you know, uh, for for a bunch of different reasons. Some uh, actors in an economy can be kind of uh, stuck in a situation that other actors can then more or less take advantage of by increasing their profits relative to, to what they would have elsewhere with a sort of less captive uh, population of consumers or workers or something. Look, a lot of inequality comes from two things. One is exploitation. That's what I just described of like some actor kind of extracting value from another actor who is constrained or, or, or weakened in some way. And then the other is kind of opportunity hoarding or figuring out, OK, hey, uh, the three of us have this uh, great opportunity here. Let's figure out a way to uh, keep other people from getting the degrees or the jobs or whatever that we have. That's sort of a helpful way maybe to think a little about how the way sociologists and economists think a bit differently about inequality, where both of those two channels that I just mentioned are really, they emphasize sort of the relationship between multiple actors, where there's like uh, different people who are trying to get advantages, who then uh, through the process of that end up disadvantaging other people. And I think that the reason sociologists tend to think in those somewhat more relational terms about inequality is that often we're thinking about cases where there isn't sort of, you know, perfectly competitive prices, some, you know, nice market mechanism that's mediating these kinds of interactions that therefore sort of open up the possibility for, for these other, uh, other dynamics. But I, I'd also say like exploitation per se doesn't necessarily mean inequality. Like you could imagine situations where exploitation actually reduces inequality depending on the starting point of different dimensions of resources that different actors have. So I think it is like insofar as exploitation dynamics contribute to inequality, I think that's sort of an empirical set of hypotheses that, that you'd want to test rather than something that's sort of assumed by the, the exploitation concept itself. So taking account of everything we've discussed, Declines in unionization, internal labor markets, shifts in consumer demand, exploitation. What policies might be put in place to stem the tide of growing inequality or maybe to like lock in the wage growth recently achieved by those at the bottom of the distribution? So, you know, in another five years, things just don't start, you know, keep going back up. Yeah, it's a great question. And maybe one people can probably tell from this like freewheeling, pretty broad conversation. I have the opinion that there's just like a lot of stuff that goes into inequality. It's not one or two things, it's five or 10 things. And so one uh, sort of optimistic consequence of that is that gives policymakers potentially a lot of different levers that they could think about for trying to reduce inequality rather than sort of just one single thing that, that they can do or, or not do, like expand higher education is like the, the only sort of option. So I, I mentioned before the, the potential for labor law reform to sort of make it easier for workers who, who want to to form unions and, and increase their collective bargaining power. I also mentioned earlier increased minimum wages, which we haven't increased the, the national minimum wage since the Obama administration, but at the local and state government level, there have been minimum wage increases. And there's strong evidence that this in those states decreases inequality and, and raises pay for, for workers at the bottom of the distribution. So now there's sort of a, a another side of my work and of this discussion, which is more about sort of 
firms and organizations and employers and what they're doing and decisions that they're making. And as someone who works at a business school, I often think about sort of like, you know, what would you want to tell an MBA manager about how to think differently about the employment relationship, about these sort of things? And, you know, I think one one piece of that is this whole question around outsourcing and the boundaries of the firm that we've been talking about, of thinking about ways that, that you can actually bring a more diverse set of workers into an organization and uh, figure out sort of, you know, maybe unexpected ways that, that they can create value within the firm rather than just thinking of this as like, okay, you know, we, we need workers in the cafeteria, but let's just contract with, with somebody else and, and, and not worry about doing that in-house. And I think that, that connects uh, to some uh, ongoing work that I've been doing, looking at kind of ways that employers can change the set of tasks that uh, workers in frontline positions are doing that sort of increases their complexity, increases their autonomy and discretion in a way that can both uh, increase productivity and also increase wages for workers in those positions. Um, so that's what I've been thinking about a lot recently is sort of how non-state actors like employers could contribute to reducing labor market inequality. And I think it's it's a much harder question what sort of uh, changes policymakers could implement that would sort of support the right kind of high road employer strategies with respect to workers. But I, I think it's, it's, it's a really good question. Well, Nate, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Great. Thanks to you guys. This was really, really fun. Hey everyone, if you've listened to any of our past episodes, you've probably heard my voice before but have no idea who I actually am. So let me introduce myself. My name is Eric Geber and I'm the producer for the Inequality Podcast. And in that role, I'm always trying to find good subjects for these final inequality and perspective segments. I'm a little embarrassed to say that this episode's segment was harder to come up with than it should have been. I had been racking my brain trying to think of the right angle to take. Nothing seemed to fit quite right. And then it hit me one Saturday morning all of a sudden. I was working downstairs and my wife was getting ready to leave the house. She told me she was heading out and that she was going to get some batches. And once I heard her say that, I rushed out of my office and ran up the stairs. Will you let me interview you? I blurted out. When my wife mentioned batches, she meant orders from Instacart and Shipped, another delivery platform. For the last year and a half or so, my wife has been working in the gig economy, the same gig economy that Nate Wilmers talked about during the interview. I essentially had a front row seat to this kind of employment. Now, I'm sure many of you are already very familiar in one way or another with apps like Uber, Instacart, or DoorDash, either as a consumer or as an employee or both. So I'm not going to spend time explaining what those are, but I can provide a little bit of background on what led my wife to sign up. In 2021, I left the military and we moved back to Chicago. My wife and I are both from the area. That fall, I started graduate school at the University of Chicago. And basically, we went from living on a comfortable salary to living, well, like poor graduate students. And if it was just the two of us, maybe it wouldn't have been that bad. But we also have a young daughter. She was three at the time I started school. Daycare was expensive and pretty much out of the question on our limited budget, which meant that my wife was a stay-at-home mom. We tried to do the best that we could with the housing stipend I got from the VA, and I was eventually able to secure some part-time work through the university, but it was still hard to make ends meet. So in early 2022, my wife decided to start taking orders. It seemed like a good solution, something that she could do on her own time, and most importantly, with our daughter. And at the beginning, it actually was pretty good. That extra income, although modest, definitely helped. She was busy at the beginning and could bring in almost $500 a week. But this was during what you might consider the honeymoon phase. Things didn't quite stay that way. And let me just say right here that these stories are all based on my wife's own experiences and are meant to demonstrate how our family has interacted with the gig economy. You mentioned that when you first start off as an Instacart delivery person, they give you the good batches, but then later on, it kind of becomes more sparse. Or if you dip below that really high rating, then you get less, uh, less batches. Has that been your experience? So what happens at the beginning is that when you first start, is that they treat you like you're a five-star 
driver for Instacart. So they will send you all the good batches at first. After I think after you hit like 20 batches, then you you start seeing like there's a decrease in uh, good batches. And then like you just see all these like bad orders and you just have to wait around a lot longer to get those good orders. So what constitutes a poor rating? And what rating equates to bad batches and spending a lot of time waiting in a parking lot? So right now, my score on Instacart is a 4.90. It's based out of five stars. So technically, that's not a good score. If you're below a 4.95, like they can send you very like bad orders. So what would be an example of a bad order? Um, a customer will order like 50 items from Costco and those 50 items can give me like 10 cases of water bottles for only like 15 bucks, which is, that's pretty bad. I mean, if you're going to be carrying that many water bottles or like heavy items, especially from Costco. On top of that, drivers become the face of the store that they're delivering for. Customers can, and often do, blame missing products on the delivery person, even if the store simply didn't have those products in stock. Of course, this doesn't always explain why a driver will have low reviews, read less than perfect reviews, but an unwarranted one-star review can really sting even more knowing just how hard it is to secure the best-paying batches. And my wife, like most drivers, will try their hardest to get the customers what they want. They'll search multiple aisles, they'll ask the clerks to check the inventory stored on the back, they'll try to message the customers asking if a replacement item is okay. On one occasion, my wife even used her own money to apologize for a shortcoming in the order, but to no avail. Some lady ordered a rotisserie chicken, I think. It was rotisserie chicken at like 9 o'clock in the morning. I tried to find the chicken. They told me they won't have them out till like 10 o'clock because it's they barely opened the store or whatever. So I get everything else except for the chicken for this lady. And I actually buy cookies to apologize for not having for them not having her chicken. Like I bought it out of my own pocket. I wrote a note. I'm sorry. The next day I have a review from like this this customer and she says, every time I order from you, they never have what I want. So yeah, I got a one star, even though I wrote an apology letter to this lady. So delivery work can be pretty lousy and unforgiving. Are there any benefits to it though? My wife could think of two examples. One, apps will give you promos where like, if you complete a certain amount of orders, you can get like $20 extra or $30 extra, it just depends on the promo. And then ultimately like why I do it, it's because it's flexible. I can take Julia with me and do it on my own time. Beyond personal experience, I've also wondered how my wife and I fit into the larger picture. What brings other people into the gig economy? What role did COVID play? And are we part of some kind of tidal change in how employment is going to look into the future? Some media outlets certainly make it seem like this might be the case. It seems like everybody these days has a side hustle on top of their everyday job. That's because many Americans do. Let's take a look at the side hustle economy. Now the growing gig economy. People all across the country are finding creative ways to bring in some extra money with a side hustle this holiday season. And then there's this article from Forbes published in February of this year that estimates that more than half of the workforce will be part of the U.S. gig economy by 2027. So to sort through all these bigger questions, I decided to reach out to a former professor of mine. So my name is Dimitri Kustis, and I'm an assistant professor at the Harris School of Public Policy. And he was also one of the co-authors of the paper that Nate Wilmers had referenced, which was recently published by the Becker Friedman Institute at the University of Chicago. Dr. Kustis has long had an interest in gig work and individual consumer behavior. In fact, his class that I took was in household finance. And no, that's not the same as home economics. Well, home economics maybe might be more useful. Uh, I didn't teach. I think that that's, that's where they kind of teach you how to cook, right? And uh, they sew and do other tasks. Yeah, I don't cook very well and I don't sew very well. Ah, so he's a humble economist. I guess the first question to sort through would be, is gig economy work booming? Are the numbers really as high as some outlets are reporting? Dr. Kustis and his fellow researchers looked at tax data to figure this out. So one of our key findings is that uh, there's a large share of the workforce that engages with gig work in some capacity. 
we find that more than one in 10 workers have some income over the course of the year from the gig economy. Uh, and the next question we look at is whether or not gig work is growing over time. And when we looked at the headline data, that's what it looked like. Uh, but as we dug in, turned out the picture was a, was a little bit, not quite what it seemed. So what we found was that the growth was concentrated among a small number of new types of these online platforms. Um, so those gig economy platforms, and they were mainly associated, the growth was coming from a particular type of task, driving tasks, so rideshare. So yeah, so that's what, we've, that's what we found. All of the growth seems to be coming from these new online platforms. It doesn't appear like elsewhere in the workforce we're seeing a rise in, in gig work. And much of the recent explosion in gig economy growth came about as a result of the pandemic. Specifically, the platform gig economy grew most in two key areas, grocery delivery and telehealth. And of those two, it's grocery delivery that explains the lion's share of the growth. By the end of 2021, Dr. Kustis estimated that there were about 3 million people who received income from platform work, and most of those people were doing some sort of delivery service. Another interesting finding was that the share of workers employed through platforms also increased. In 2019, it represented 10% of all people in the broader gig economy, and by 2021, that figure had tripled to 30%. So what about those media reports about a robust and growing gig economy? Uh, you know, I think that the media, they have, they have an incentive for kind of a flashy headline. So definitely, there's these statistics that are commonly cited that the gig economy is growing rapidly. I'm sure you've read that headline. The, the issue was that these numbers came from online survey panels. They're great for a lot of questions, but the main problem for measuring gig work is that people in online panels tend to be more likely to be self-employed gig workers. Uh, in fact, you know, most of these online panels are paying their panelists, and so the workers are in the gig economy by definition. Uh, and the, the tax data, the advantage of the tax data is it doesn't have this problem. And we just don't find that the gig economy is replacing traditional employment or, or it's going to overtake traditional employment. And another thing is that we find that it's been pretty similar over time, with the exception of the growth we see in recent years coming from these online platforms. So what Dr. Kustis and his team's research shows is that the platform gig economy grew, in fact, by about 150 percent between 2019 and 2021. But gig work overall actually shrank slightly. Dr. Kustis thinks that the number of gig workers will remain roughly the same in the future although there might be some stickiness with regards to grocery delivery. And that's kind of a clever economist way of saying that people's preferences for delivered groceries, largely born out of the pandemic, will stick around and remain a residual part of demand even after the pandemic has pretty much subsided. But a seismic shift in the structure of the economy? Unlikely. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about inequality. Is gig platform work exacerbating any trends in inequality? Again, the picture is not so clear cut. You know, the rates of doing gig work, it's unequal across the income distribution. It's high at the low end of the income distribution. It's also high at the high ending of the income distribution. The high type of gig work is of course different. They're not doing the same stuff. So at the low end, it's largely transportation, construction, tasks. You know, those are the main industries at the low end. Um, so the bottom, it's really about misclassification that in a firm might be using a gig worker instead of a wage employee. So they, they hire you as a gig worker instead to get around having to pay you the min, minimum wage or, or overtime or something like that. Now, in our research, we don't see evidence. We see evidence of that, but we don't see evidence that it's been growing dramatically over time. Platform gig work, though, I think is a little bit more complicated. So as I said, you know, most people do it part time. People use it when they face income shocks from a main job. So in the sense that if people can use gig work to help smooth shocks, so there's trends in inequality, trends that people are facing more shocks over time, well, gig work can be this little Band-Aid that can help you smooth that shock. And in that sense, uh, gig work can help reduce inequality. Now, while I did take some economics courses, including Dr. Kustis's, I am certainly no economist, but allow me to try to explain a part of his answer. When he talks about shocks, he's referring to significant changes in income. And that's exactly what my family and I experienced. The change from an army salary to basically no salary was indeed a big shock. And in order to try to maintain a similar lifestyle or smooth our consumption patterns in economics parlance, my wife joined the gig economy 
It was a very common response for many other people experiencing very similar circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Particularly for platform gig work, um, most platform gig workers are 85% on average. They're doing this work on a part-time basis and they're making just a few thousand dollars a year. However, you know, something I've explored in one of my papers is that people tend to do this work at critical junctures in their lives. So let's say during a period of unemployment and you know, getting a few thousand dollars when you really need it, that can be really valuable to people, even if it's not a lot of money on an annual basis. Now, I don't want to give the impression that Dr. Kustis is a booster for platform work. In fact, he and my wife both had their fair share of negative things to say about it. A lot of waiting time, especially with Instacart. Um, I have to actually drive to the parking lot of stores and wait for orders to come in. You know, you're not covered by many of the protections that wage workers have, such as the minimum wage, sick time, overtime. The quality of orders can be really bad. There aren't opportunities for advancement. You know, you're not going to rise up at the mailroom being an Uber driver. The base pay that these companies give you are incredibly low. There's not a lot of returns to experience. You figure it out in you know a few months and you probably meet, meet your you know, peak earnings. There's a lot of driving that goes into it. And obviously, like you put, you're putting in mileage to the car, so it's not good for the car. Gig work is not really a resume booster. And what would their biggest piece of advice be for someone considering a career in the gig economy? Their answers are nearly identical. Um, so for this reason, you know, I think that gig work is a great second job, um, whether to make extra money, to tide you over between jobs or when you don't have the hours at, at work. But, but I think it's, it's not a great first job for all of those reasons. If you can find a job, find a job. Don't rely on gig econ economy. Like I like I used to be in Facebook groups where people have quit their full-time jobs or part-time jobs. Don't quit your job. And if you really like the delivery of this segment, consider giving us our own five-star rating. It won't get us any more batches, but it will help the show gain visibility. Okay, enough shameless promotion. For more information on Dr. Kustis and his team's research, as well as links to the paper that's been published on the Becker Friedman Institute website, be sure to check the show notes. The Inequality Podcast is a production of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth Inequality and Mobility at the University of Chicago. It is hosted by myself, Stephen Durloff, along with Damon Jones, Jeffrey Wadka, and Ariel Khalil. This episode was recorded, sound engineered, and produced by Eric Gepper with support from Gerardo Espinal Franco. Thanks as well to the center's executive director, Grace Hammond, for all her support. Please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast among your friends and send any questions or feedback to ucstonecenter at gmail.com. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us.